We are in Psalm 119 again. Psalm 119, as I get there quickly. Psalm 119, this is part 10, and we are in verse 73, in the stanza that will take us through verse 80. 73 to 80, Psalm 119, stanza 10. I was doing a little uh, forethought of how to plan out all these weeks of doing Psalm 119. There's, of course, there's 22 stanzas. Uh, I didn't actually plan this, but, you know, this is how God works. <laughs> uh, just because of some of the weeks when I'm traveling, uh, it'll work out to where the last weekend of this year, 2019, I will be able to do what I'm planning on doing is finishing out stanza 20 in the Sunday school hour like this, and then do, or 21, excuse me, and then stanza 22 in the main worship service, and we can close out the series uh, right as the year is ending. I think that's kind of perfect. It'll be kind of nice, and then we can enter in to the new year with a new Sunday school rotation and whatnot. I'm really looking forward to that. It kind of works out that way really nicely. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so we're about halfway through Psalm 119. Uh, let me read today's stanza and then we'll get into the lesson. Uh, stanza number 10 in verse 73. The psalmist writes, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hath, uh, hast afflicted me. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to thy word unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed. For they dealt per perversely with me without a cause. But I will meditate in thy precepts. Let those that fear thee turn unto me. And those that have known thy testimonies. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes. That I be not ashamed. As we've gone through this series, I hope it's been one that has been encouraging to you. One that has been also, as we prayed, enriching as well. Uh, just because each stanza really affords us, the Christian, the believer, the one who is studying the word, I would say, uh, I would just say boundless encouragement that comes from the word. And I think this is what David is pursuing. This is what David is seeking. We've looked at all these various ways in which David is coming to the word and he's seeing what it says to him about him and about his God. And that is where he's finding his encouragement. The sort of phrase we've been repeating, and I hope it doesn't sound too old hat to you, but the word of God is unceasingly relevant and I think that's really, I hope that's ringing true to you because it will always have something to say. It will always have something to apply to you. And you can see it in David's life. It is always something to which he is resorting and finding comfort. And he's learning about himself through it, about his pride, about his uh, fickleness, about his, uh, his comfort in seasons of distress. Uh, one ancient church father, St. Ambrose, he said this, which I love. Although all divine scripture breathes the grace of God, yet sweet beyond all others is the book of Psalms. It is a kind of medicine for the salvation of man. It is the benediction of the people, the praise of God, the thanksgiving of the multitude, the voice of the church, the harmonious confession of our faith. And I find that really true. I like how he says it. it's the medicine. It is our comfort, our sort of tonic as we are going through this life. This is what we resort to. It's, it's 
sad, but it's true that most of the times when you're going through a stressful season of life, what book do you want to read? I, I doubt you turn to Leviticus. You probably turn to the Psalms because it has just this earthy, human, uh, honest comfort to it that is so uh, relevant, that resonates with us. And it is that voice, that confession, because it's the confession of one who's been through it already. And these are the truths that we cling to, and the truths that we can be sure are certain, because they are found in the word. You'll notice, I think this is so fascinating, uh, stanza number 10, of course, all these stanzas in the Hebrew are probably much more beautiful, uh, obviously because they, uh, it's an acrostic psalm in which all the stanzas begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This one here is Yod. You'll notice that. It might, you might have that little marker at the beginning of your psalm or beginning of the stanza in front of verse 73. It's that Hebrew letter Yod, which you might want to know is the smallest Hebrew marking in the Hebrew alphabet. And what does it remind you of? Just the spelling of it. J-O-D is perhaps is your transliteration. It reminds me of Christ's words in Matthew 5.18. Let me read this to you. Matthew 5.18. Christ is speaking uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. He's beginning this discourse, this longest discourse. And what does he say? He says this. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. That little jot is sort of the same little marking that we might find in Hebrew called yod. And it reminds me of this fact. Why can we cling to these confessions of David so strongly? Why can we find such encouragement in God's word so unceasingly? It's because these promises will never fade away. None of them will ever be able to be erased, be taken away as long as Jesus is alive. That's encouraging to me. Even these, this stanza right here, it, we can have uh, assurance in it because of its longevity. The longevity of the word is such that it is eternal. It cannot fade away. It cannot pass away. And here, David, I think we find three lessons about this longevity. Longevity in, in David's own life in which he is finding it in the longevity of the word. Notice quickly verse 73 and also verse 75. I think we find a lesson about authority. Verse 73. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. I love how he begins the stanza. The stanza talking about longevity and he's affirming God's authority in his own creation, in his own making. He was made and fashioned by this God. By this God who had authority over him. Made is their indicative of creation. That God literally fashioned him, made him, formed him. And fashioned there is really uh, a word that's indicative of established, of fixed, of making steady. This was his authority. His authority was the creator himself. And he recognized that. He knew that his life did not belong to him. He was not his own. David's life was not his. David's life belonged to this one who had authority over him. It was him who was giving him and telling him uh, all the things about life. That's why he says, give me understanding. Let me learn thy commandments. 
He was learning a lesson about his authority. The authority that shows him the way to live. It's the creator. That's the one who owned him. That's the one who had impressed his image upon him such that he was not his own. He was created by God to live for God. There's a great verse in Job. Let me read it to you. Job chapter 2, I believe it is. Job, or excuse me, Job chapter 12, which he affirms something similar. Job 12 verse 10 says, In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? It's God alone. He alone is the one who holds all of the breath of all living creatures. That's the type of authority that he has. And that's the type of authority that David is recognizing that God has over him. This person controls my life because he's the one that is holding it in his hand. I think it's remarkable that he's praying this way because only redeemed people pray this way. Only a person who recognizes God's authority in his life and in his death and in his sustenance and in his salvation will make this sort of prayer of utter dependence. Really, that's what that is. You notice what he's saying there? Thy hands have made and fashioned me. They've created me. They've formed me. They've established me in this life. They've uh, been my support. All of your authoritative words for me have sustained me. He's acknowledging. He's confessing. God, I'm utterly dependent on you. This is a prayer that is only prayed by those who are the redeemed of God. Those who do not know God. Those who don't accept this way of salvation will not ever be able to admit their dependence. What's, what's our, self sort of, uh, our, our self-appointed, self-conceited due north of our soul is that we are the ones who are independent. We are autonomous. We can rule our own lives. We don't need any interference. This has been the heart of man ever since Genesis 3. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, man has been trying to disprove his, uh, uh, the reality of life uh, that needs God. Every single uh, scientific endeavor that we have seen throughout history has been sort of a, 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 a wild goose chase of man to try and prove their existence, their purpose, their origins without God. Why? Because if there's no God, there's no authority. They don't have to answer to this person. They don't have to answer to this person that made them, that has authority over them, that has rule over them. So man, uh, most notably, we can see this in the story of the Tower of Babel. But all over the Old Testament, all over the scriptures, all over our lives, you can see this. It's man trying to disprove God as if that would get rid of the authority that God has on his life. Then he can live autonomously, independently. He can be his own sovereign. But the proof is in the pudding. That reality makes life so frustrating. Why do you think man is utterly depressed? Because he's trying to be something that he wasn't created to be. He's trying to rule his own life by shirking God's authority, which makes life just utterly frustrating, completely miserable. And here David's being taught the true way of life. 
the way of life that makes life not frustrating, but freeing and flourishing, which is recognizing your authority. The way to Christian longevity, the way to have endurance in your spiritual life and durability in your faith is recognizing and finding your life and the one who has authority over it. And the one, as David is saying here, who made him and fashioned him. He has rule over him. And he's praying, give me understanding, God. Let me learn. Let me learn thy ways, thy precepts, thy statutes. Let me obey your commandments. How? Because he's praying to live in light of this authority, this authority of God over him. And notice verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right. And that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. This acceptance, this acknowledgement of authority, this overruling authority of God over his life is now enabling him to accept life's hardships as those that are coming from the Lord himself. He's saying, your judgments are right. Your, basically, he's, he's literally iterating there, your justice is just. <laughs> It's, it's sort of a, a repetition, just it, signifying the completion, the perfection of God's justice and judgments are so perfect that even in his affliction, he is saying, you are right and good, even in that. Only a person who is living under and in the authority of God can see these afflictions as coming from God and more than that can see them as being good. In just justice, you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, you have let this come upon me. He's living in that authority. He's seeing, as we looked at last week, this idea of affliction and David praying for it. It's almost, I like this idea that seeing these uh, adversities as coming from the Lord, or as being allowed by the Lord in our lives, it's almost, we could say, it's, it's camouflaged grace. It's grace that's camouflaged in this way that seems frustrating, that seems turbulent. But as we know, it is for our good. And it's revealing God's goodness. Even in that moment of suffering, of sorrow, of heartache. Even there he's being gracious. Even there he's seeking to show himself as the authoritative ruler over our lives. Those who reject God's authority will only see affliction as his abandonment. You know, whenever something bad happens in our society, what's the first question people ask oftentimes? Where's God? How could he let this happen? How could he let this horrible thing happen? That was a question after 9-11, right? Where's God now? Or the, the stock market crash in 2008. Where's God? How could he, how could he let this economic crisis happen? <laughs> and, and it's in those moments when we see that, that not that God has left us. It's we see that we have left him. That we have turned away from him. He never leaves us. That's the promise of Hebrews. It's the promise of scriptures. He will never ever leave you nor forsake you. Yes, even if you're trying to shake him off, he won't allow you to do it. He is always there. But it's we who often leave him, who turn our backs away from him. And then when adversity strikes, we wonder, where is God? 
It's as if he's saying, I've been here all along. You just haven't seen me. And David here, I think, is saying that those who are under God's authority, living in light of it, living under it, are seeing adversity and affliction as God's faithfulness at work. They see that as if, as if God's faithful hand is actually active in their lives. What the, the commentator Charles Bridges on this chapter, he says, The trials appointed for us are none else than the faithful performance of his everlasting engagements. Which basically just means it's just proving his involvement. It's proving his interruption and involvement in our lives. His hand is active in our lives. You can see it. All the time. And by faith we can see it in affliction. By faith in this one who has authority over us. This is what faith in the gospel allows us to see. It allows us to see that even in affliction. In the middle of affliction as we saw last week. He is there. Right there with us. In the middle of it. And why? It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. It's because this word has this eternal longevity to it. It is always going to be steadfast and firm and secure and sure. As that sure uh, source of relief and comfort. That's why you can come to it and, and know that it has meaning for you. And it has meaning in whatever situation you have. A lesson about authority. But quickly look at verse 74. David is also learning a lesson about community. Look what he says. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. I love that verse. He's attesting to just the added benefit of living in light of God's authority is that it brings you into community with others who are living in light of that authority. It brings you into a fellowship of those who are also putting their faith in this one who has formed and fashioned them. He says, they that fear thee will be glad when they see me. Look also at verse 79. It says, let those that fear thee turn unto me and those that have known thy testimonies. He knows too. It says, they that fear. And it says, let those that fear. It's, that's the, it's the, the, the commonality between those in this community. is the fact that they are uh, reverencing this. They have this reverential fear of God. This reverential sort of uh, like-minded awe of this one who has authority over them. They come together and they realize that their lives are not their own. They belong to another. They belong to this one who has made and fashioned them. Who has created them. This is what it means to be the church. This is the church that he's describing. Those that fear thee and are glad when they see each other's company. They are glad, he says, when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. There's the community that comes from living in God's authority it's a community that relishes each other's company. But also I love how he says they will rejoice. They will be glad. They are happy. They are rejoicing. They are gladsome at the fact that they see my hope. What's he talking about? He's talking about his testimony. You see, this is what is so awesome about being in church with other like-minded folk of the same faith. We are glad 
when we see others' testimonies of going through hardship or going through successes and not losing or forgetting their faith. Why do, we, why, why do we get up and share testimonies sometimes? It's because of this very thing. We can cheer and make someone encouraged and glad at seeing our hope. At seeing what we have endured or what others have endured. Which cheers us and strengthens us. They are glad when they see God's hand of faith in someone else's life. See God's hand of assurance. Hand of peace in someone else's life. And this is what the church is about. We are worshiping God's faithful love for us. In all seasons and all times, all of us have a share in this. This is what makes worship so sweet, is we all can rejoice in the same God who has, yes, been faithfully loving to us in different ways, but he has always been faithfully loving. He has always been merciful. He has always been good. And we are made to testify to that. As David says, they will be glad when they see me because I have hoped. Through it all, he was finding hope. Where? Not in his circumstances. Not in what people were saying about him. Not in how uh, awesome he is living out this devotion. Not in any other source. But in the word of God alone. I have hoped in thy word. That's his testimony. That's what he's testifying to. This sure foundation. The longevity of the word of hope. Which is found in this word in affliction. And he's testifying it to others. It's his testimony to this like-minded community of faith that God's faithfulness never leaves. Yes, even in affliction, David is saying, I can testify to it. I can show you all the times that I have been afflicted and God has always proven faithful. He's always proven faithful. Bridges again, he comments this, and I love this. He says, David recorded his conflicts that we may not despair of our own. That's encouraging to me. Why are we unafraid to share our griefs and our hardships in the church? Because we all have the same griefs and hardships at times. But more than that, we all have the same Savior who meets us in those griefs and hardships. That's what I love. I was just talking to someone recently. We don't have to, uh, there's this stigma at times that we have to come to church with our Sunday best. We have to not show any cracks in in our life, in our demeanor, in our emotions. Because after all, the church is for good people. We have to make sure we look good and sound good. We can't sound as if our, our faith is cracking at times. David, I think, disproves that. He, he dispels that notion that, that church is not uh, about wearing your Sunday best all the time and just that idea. It's more of the fact that we can show our scars. Why? Because we have a Savior who meets us and heals those scars, who meets us in those times of grief and suffering and sorrow and anguish. We are free and right to share and relay those griefs with each other. Why? Because we have the same authority. We have this community who is uh, reverencing and worshiping this same God who faithfully loves us in all of our seasons. 
In all of our moments, even in moments of doubt and despair, and even in our moments of conflict, we can rejoice. Because we know that others before us were faithful. Others before us endured. Others before us and with us have endured much worse seasons than we are. Yet they never wavered in their faith. They never wavered in their faith, not because of their ability, but because they found their faith in the longevity of the word. We can comfort others in affliction with this testimony. The testimony that David has. Because I have hoped in thy word. There's a wonderful passage. Let me read it to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I've been studying this first chapter of 2 Corinthians to do another sermon on this. But I figured I'd throw it in here because it, it speaks to me so greatly. This comfort that David is comforting these others, these, those that fear thee. He's saying that you have seen me and you're glad because you've seen me hope in God's word. I love this. Paul is echoing that sentiment as he's writing to the church of Corinth. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, he says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and I love this, the God of all comfort. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. What beautiful words. What, uh, what amazing comfort. That as the God was meeting Paul and those that were ministering with him, he says, we are comforting you with the same comfort that we have been comforted by. Which is the longevity, the eternality of the good news, the gospel, the word of God. We can hope in that. Because it tells us about, as Paul says, the father of mercies. The God of all comfort. This one who has authority over us. David is saying, I'm testifying to that. And you can find comfort in that. He's comforting others with the same comfort which he has been comforted by. I love that. He says in verse 78, back in Psalm 118, Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause, but I will meditate in thy precepts. The God of all comfort was meeting David. Yes, even when those around him were deriding him, were slandering him, were arrogantly coming up to him and trying to twist the truth. It says, they dealt perversely with me without cause. They were twisting reality with their words, slandering him. These were fabricating their own realities of how life should work. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the first lesson. That those who reject God's authority and pretend and try to fabricate their own will be these same proud people who try to take down others. And David is saying, I don't want to listen to that noise. 
These proud have come up to me and they've tried to uh, twist me and get me away from the truth. But what does he do? What is his resort? I will meditate in thy precepts. He's trying to not get captured and, and, and brought down by that proud, haughty slander. He's praying to drown out the noise of all of that with the word of God. Let me, let me silence myself in the word of God which speaks to me. And rather than getting dismayed at these perverse words of these proud, he's praying to remember God's precepts. Even in the midst of this time of being despised and hated by these proud, these proud and perverse peers of his. He's meditating, he's thinking, he's immersing himself in this word of God alone. This is the bond that keeps the community of faith together. Why do we as a church subsist? It's because we subsist on the word of God alone. It's not any of our skills or like-mindedness in other areas. It's not anything that doing with me. It's all because of the God who is the God of this word. The God of this book that you hold in front of you. He is keeping us together by the promises of this book. That's why we read it. That's why we carry it with us. That's why we have it in front of us. It's this word that keeps us together. We're fastened together by the faithful love that God shows us in his word. By what he says about himself. This word is literally the self-revelation of the faithfulness of God. Which is the longevity of our faith. It's not in our abilities. Not in our resolve, our fortitude in any way. It comes back to the word of God alone. I have hoped in thy word. That's what makes others glad. That's what other, others see in me. And this leads us to our third lesson. A lesson about authority. A lesson about community. But also thirdly, a lesson about vitality. Look at verse 3. Or excuse me, look at verse 76. Let I pray thee thy merciful kindness... Be for my comfort according to thy word unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live. For thy law is my delight. Verse 80. Let my heart be sound in the statutes that I be not ashamed. His, David's <coughs> acceptance of authority and this assumption of community now is leading him to pray for this sustained Vitality, this, uh, this animation of life, this energy, this feeling of having life put into you. And the word of God is telling him this. This word of God, which was also informing him of his, where his authority lied. And also instilling in him this love for the community of those that feared the same authority. Is now telling him where his life is found. Life meaning uh, endurance and energy and devotion. Where that sort of life is found is, is found in the one who is the God of all mercies. The God of all comfort. He says, let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort. Then he says, verse 70, let thy mer tender mercies come unto me that I may live. He's praying. My endurance, God, is up to you. My endurance in this life is up to you. It's up to you who are my authority, who has come down 
and given me your mercy. This is all of God's promises. All of God's promises are mercies to us. They bar what we don't deserve. They take it away. They, they obstruct the things that we, uh, that, we, excuse me, that we do deserve. And they give us what we do not deserve. This is the mercies of God and the promises of God. And he's made to thrive in them. He says that I may live. And I love that word in verse 80. Let my heart be sound. And we have a sense of comfort and relief. And the soundness of mind and soul and heart. Where? In the word of mercy. The word of mercy that cannot fade away. The word of God's mercies which cannot be stripped from this world. It is our assurance. It is our comfort. And he's saying here, I am finding no other comfort, God, in this word alone. This word that you have given unto me. It's Christ for my comfort and my life for his service, he is praying. And the vitality, this life that he was praying for is, the, is, is such that it was given to him. I love how he says that. Let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live. The longevity that he was seeking, the faith that he is praying for is only found in this word. It's only found in this word of God to us. This word of God for us. This is what Jesus' promises do to us. They, uh, they give us this vitality, this energy, this, this life. And it's all tied to the mercy that comes unto us. These promises, they produce soundness. They produce stillness. That word sound there really means complete or, or whole or free from, from blemishes. You know, if you know David's life, you know that's not true. <laughs> David's life was marred with scandal, with struggle, with strife, all over the place. And where, and it, as we've looked at before, can you imagine what that did to him? Again, I, I think about this. What happened between he and Uriah and Bathsheba, I think haunted him for the rest of his life. You don't think Satan tried to come up to him and tempt him in his moments of weakness and despair? That how can God forgive you who have done this? Think about the, the, the conflict in his own family as Absalom was coming and trying to take the throne away from him. You don't think Satan was trying to work on him and say, you did this. You were the one that caused this. Through your uh, iniquity, you made this happen. And here he's saying, let my heart be sound. Let me find completeness. Let me find rest in the fact that you have made me free from guilt and sin. That you have let your mercy come unto me. And that's the only reason why I'm living. This is his authority. This is his comfort. This is his vitality, his energy in life. And he was going to it in all those moments of weakness and despair. Charles Bridges again. Let me close with this quote. He says this, and I love, I love how he puts these thoughts together. He says, 
but learn in the hour of trial where to go and what to do. Go to the word of God for direction and support. There is often a hurry of mind in times of difficulty. Can you relate to that? (laughs) In times of stress and difficulty and affliction, there's this hurriness of mind. And he says, which unhinges the soul from the simple exercise of faith. But habit brings practice and steadiness and simplicity, enabling us most sweetly to fix our hearts upon the word of God and to apply its directions and encouragements to the present exigency to the present reality can you relate to that when something is troubling you does it unhinge your faith (laughs) i'm i'm the type of person that when something is really stressing me out i'm the person that just dwells on it in silence which is really just unsmart (laughs) because i'm just sitting there festering in my own thoughts about things that might happen like this this outcome could happen And what would that do? And then I would have to... It's so self-defeating. It's an unhinging of the soul from the simple exercise of faith. And what Bridges is saying, I think, what David is saying, is in those moments, don't hurry your mind to all those things. Hurry your mind to accept the authority of God. To relish in the community that you have around you. And to rejoice in the fact that your life, your vitality is given to you by this one who has authority over you. Praise be to God that he speaks to us in this way. That our lives, our faith can find longevity in this word that is eternal and cannot be taken from us. Let us pray.